it's nice to see you all here today. And uh, happy Mother's Day again to all the mothers. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So we've got a, uh, a big, long chapter in Acts to look at today. And um, I wanted to, before diving into that, uh, just explain a little bit for two seconds, two minutes here, um, why we do what we just did. Because I was having some conversations with some friends over the weekend, and uh, they mentioned, you know, reading big, long passages of the Bible and saying, that seems like a lot. That seems like too much. And maybe if you were standing there, your knees kind of giving out a little bit, you might have been thinking the same thing. Um, but we do that because... In the Bible, Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And the words of this book are life. And Paul commands his letters to be read aloud to all the brothers. And I, we want to do that to remind us that all the things I'm about to say here, um, unless they're grounded in this book, are worthless, are not life, are not spirit, are, are lies even. And I think it's good for us to, to hear the Bible read aloud that way. I think it's biblical. So we're going to try and cover a lot of chapter 18. I don't think I'm going to get to all of, 18, all of chapter 18 here, but um, <clears throat> I want to look at it through this lens. Um, you don't have to turn there, but uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, this kind of became my theme as I, or my key to unlocking this chapter, I think, as I was looking through it. Um, in 1 Peter 2, 11, he says, brothers, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That, that phrase sojourners, that, that's the one that struck me here because we get to see in 18, uh, I think a different version of Paul's ministry than we've seen before. Acts has been filled with these grandiose speeches, not speeches, messages, preaching. Uh, Acts has been filled with miracles. It's been filled with the spirit coming down in power. And here in chapter 18, it almost feels like a, an, an interlude when I was reading it. It almost feels like a, a, Paul's kind of on vacation here for a minute. Because there's not, a, there's not very many dramatic things that happen. But I think it gives us some light into our own lives and gives us some uh, things that we can apply. Because our lives often look a little bit more like Acts chapter 18 than they do like Acts chapter 17. I don't often find myself in the Areopagus uh, preaching to the intelligentsia of the day. I don't know if you all do. Um, but so I'm a little bit more like Paul here. And so I want to try and just pull out some observations uh, some things I noticed in the chapter that he does as a sojourner in Corinth that I think are things we can imitate. He tells us in his letters to imitate him. Um, I think we can do that here. So, see if I can make some sense of this. Here's the first thing I noticed. Um, and this is a really little... Well, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself because my paperclip messed me up. Um, <laughs> Second, first, not the first thing I noticed. Here's the first thing I want to point out. Um, is we get to see here in the first few verses, Paul's standard operating procedure. That's what I called it. Look in uh, verse two. Well, we can start in verse one. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native Pontius, and with him uh, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We see always in the scripture, Paul in community with other believers. Acts is focused, especially the second half here, is very much focused on Paul, but we never see Paul or hardly ever see Paul alone. Even when he's in prison, um, in all of his journeys, he's accompanied by and he's gathering around him other believers. And I think that was... Uh, these are little things I think we don't need to spend a ton of time on, but it's, it's worth reminding that uh, you and me both, it's worth reminding me that the Christian life is not something I do in private by myself. It's something that happens with other believers. Second thing I think is part of his standard operating procedure here is, look in verse 5. This is, I love this verse. When Silas and Timothy, there's some more of that community, by the way. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. This is another part of our standard operating procedure. We should be like Paul here, occupied with the word. To, to be occupied, uh, you know, in a military sense means to be invaded by, means to be controlled by, under the reign of. Uh, I think that's a good metaphor for it, that we should be, uh, if not in the military sense of the word, then consumed by it and to the exclusion of other things, right? When you say someone is preoccupied, they're not noticing what's going on around them because they're focused on one thing. That should be us with the word of God. And the third thing I think we can see about Paul's sort of standard operating procedure here is he was spreading the gospel. Every time you see Paul in Acts, he is not only gathering a community of believers around himself, but he's taking the gospel message to unbelievers. Every city he comes to, it becomes a really kind of obvious pattern. Paul arrives in a new city, and what does he do? He goes to the synagogue and reasons with the Jews there, saying, Jesus is Christ. Um, that's not surprising at this point in Acts. I think none of those things, you know, that we should live in community, that we should be occupied with the word, that we should be spreading the gospel, none of those, I'm sure, were life-changing aha moments. Uh, for any of y'all just now. We've all heard this. If you're, if you're like my children and you grew up in church, you know, you know those answers to the Sunday school questions already. But it's worth reminding us because there's a, a persistent sort of, there's a persistent, I think, sin that comes from our culture that wants us to treat our religion, wants us to treat faith like something that, be like, you know, the, like the, uh, the rulers in, uh, in the Old Testament wanted Daniel to pray, you know, in the back room, out of sight. Don't let anybody else see you. It's just between you and God. That's, that's an excuse a lot of times people will say. It's just, this is just between me and God. And I think we need, to, we need to fight that, that we don't see that in the Bible. The faith happens with other believers and the faith spreads. The gospel is outward focused. So that's the starting point, I guess. That's the first thing that uh, we should never lose sight of. Here's a... Uh, the next thing I noticed, and this is what I was trying to jump ahead to, just because it's one of my favorite things. Um, I love verse 3. I love this picture of Paul. And he, and because he was of the same trade with Priscilla and Aquila, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. I don't know about, I don't know, I don't, I don't really know why it makes me so happy, but it makes me really happy to think of Paul making tents. 
Paul, you know, the guy who was riding to Damascus and saw a vision of Jesus himself and was taken up to the third heaven and uh, performed miracles and just last chapter was preaching in Athens and before that was preaching in all these other places. Paul gets to Corinth and he starts being a tent maker again. And I have this image in my head that he probably wasn't very good at it from being out of practice. This is pure speculation, but I just imagine that uh, Aquila and Priscilla were looking at each other and kind of rolling their eyes at him and redoing his seams because he'd messed it up. I don't, that could be completely false. Um, but I like that when Paul is not actively involved in his ministry, Paul's working. Paul's doing the thing, like I can identify with that. Like Paul had to get up like me and go to his job on Monday and make some tents to feed everyone. Um, and I think, you know, it, I, I don't know. I just like it. And I like the fact, this is, this is what stuck out to me. When we read Paul's letters, he tells us things all the time, these, these uh, things that we should always be doing. He says, you should pray without ceasing and you should always give thanks and in everything you do, you should do it to the glory of God. And I just imagine Paul doing that while he's making tents. That he, like when I teach my classes, can I do it praying without ceasing? And can I give thanks? Oh, that's hard sometimes to give thanks uh, while you're teaching classes. Uh, that's hard sometimes to do it to the glory of God. And I think this connects too with to, um, today's Mother's Day. And, um, you know, we can talk about motherhood in general, and it's a very noble, it's a very amazing thing. But I know in the trenches of it, a lot of times it's hard to be a mother and give thanks and pray without ceasing and do it to the glory of God every day. Maybe the first time you swept the sandy patch by the door where the kids track in the sand, but after you've done it four times today and then you can see them coming in and their shoes you know, trailing clouds of dust with them, I know by that point it gets old and it gets difficult. Um, and I think, you know, I bet Paul felt the same way. The first tent he made, he's like, oh man, it's nice to be back in the saddle. Tent number five, six, seven, he was probably looking for something else to do, wasn't he? So Paul got to work. I don't know. It just, it makes me happy. Maybe some meatier or more theological observations come next. Look, if you will, in verse five, Paul starts to encounter difficulty. Maybe he'd already had, maybe, you know, that fact that he had to make tents was already part of the difficulty of living in Corinth for a while. But here he starts to encounter some real difficulty. He arrives at the synagogue, he goes to preach and look in verse uh, six. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he goes from teaching in the synagogue to teaching in a house next to the synagogue. He's, he continues to spread the gospel. He doesn't give up and say, well, that's it. I'm going back to my house by myself where people appreciate me. He goes to a different audience. He keeps preaching the gospel. But you can imagine there, like those, that attitude, those words there are words of, of discouragement. He's been preaching. He's been doing the will of God. He's He's been spreading the gospel and people not just are, not just are indifferent to it. That's one thing, right? If, if his audience had just said, well, like we saw before, maybe we need to hear some more about this or ah, this sounds interesting, but I'm not quite sure. No, they reviled him. 
That's uh, to revile someone is to is to criticize them, but to not stop at criticize them. It's to criticize them with insults and derision. Um, and so Paul encounters here what I'm going to call he encounters scoffers. We see these people mentioned uh, all throughout the Bible. These are people that aren't just content with disagreeing with someone, but then move to personal attacks. In, in Psalm 1, um, there's this really interesting progression where the word of God says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel uh, of the sinners, nor, excuse me, I've got it wrong. Blessed is the man who, yeah, who walks not in the counsel of the sinners, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Sorry, I still messed it up, but you get the point. Counsel of the wicked stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. Um, the point being that scoffers are lumped together with the wicked and lumped together with sinners. And that always surprised me that I, I always thought, you know, a scoffer is just somebody who is, is, makes fun of others. A scoffer is just somebody who uh, doesn't take things seriously. A scoffer is somebody who's just maybe a little bit mean-spirited, but wicked, but a sinner, that seems, uh, that seems a little strong. I think here, though, we get to see why, why they're described that way. We can start to understand this because a scoffer is somebody, to scoff is to, is to not use words. To scoff is to, <laughs> is to just blow air out of your mouth and it's to abandon reason. It's instead of saying, uh, well, let me try and understand this. It's instead to dismiss something. It's consider it beneath you. It's an act of pride. And so here when the, the Jews in Corinth, they they disparage Paul's message. They're abandoning that reasoning. You know, it was just, he was described as going to the synagogue and reasoning with them, trying to convince them of this. And uh, they don't engage with him at that level. They just scoff and revile him. In logic, uh, you would call this an ad hominem fallacy. It's the idea of not listening to what somebody says because you think that person is beneath you or that person is stupid. It doesn't matter what they have to say. You don't like them. This is the way they're treating Paul here. And Paul leaves. Paul says, your blood be on your own head. I'm innocent. I think, uh, I think that's a wise choice. We can reason with other people. But, and we can, we can spread the gospel through our words. But when others, when our audience, when, our, when non-believers refuse to even listen, we go somewhere else like Paul did. We say, uh, let me talk to somebody who will listen. We don't have to stand there and be the subjects of being reviled. So, um, in 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. And we're told to, to God says, come now, let us reason together. We're told to you know, have an argument, to have a, an explanation for our, th- our faith. But I don't think, uh, I think it's pushing it too far to, to imagine ourselves debating people into Christianity. That's what Paul would have had to do here, right? He was going and he was preaching and he was reasoning. When they start reviling him, a lost cause now. That's why he moves away. So you can imagine, you know, Paul, who's, he's been on missionary journeys. He's been preaching the word. Now he's making tents. He's preaching and his, his audience isn't even listening to him. I can imagine him being a little discouraged here. 
And it doesn't stop there. God has a message for him. God comes in in the midst of his discouragement. We'll look at that. But first, let's just, let's just keep going for just a second. Because uh, even worse things happen. Paul encounters outright injustice. Not just people who refuse to listen to his message. And not just people who revile him. But then outright injustice. There's a new proconsul that arrives in town. And the Jews seize this opportunity uh, to, it says, this is verse 12, to make a united attack on him. And uh, the language here, the description here is really uh, interestingly, interestingly similar to the way that Jesus was brought to trial. Um, that Paul here is taken like Jesus. He's brought to trial. He's falsely accused. And he doesn't even get a fair trial. Right. He doesn't. The, the proconsul here, uh, Gallio, says, uh, I'm not interested in hearing uh, your arguments. Uh, this is not a matter. He says, it's not a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime. If so, I would have been ready to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own laws, see to it yourselves. That's almost the exact reasoning that, uh, that Pilate gave when the Jews brought Jesus in front of him. He says, I can't find anything wrong with him. It's all just your laws that he's broken. The Romans, uh, they have a pattern here. And unlike with Jesus, Paul gets to escape. But look what happens. Paul gets to leave. But you noticed it was described before how... Um, this is verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Um, it's no longer Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue now, because this is a year and six months later. But I can imagine that it's like him, an ally of Paul, a believer. Uh, the Jews, they take Sosthenes, the, the new ruler of the synagogue. I don't know why they don't take Paul, but they take Sosthenes. And they take him out in front of the tribunal. What an irony, right? Here's a court of justice. And they take a man inside and the judge says, ah, I don't really care about this issue. And drives them out. And in front of the court of justice, they take a man without convicting him of any crime. And they beat him. I think that in our 21st century, we like to look back and say, how barbaric. Nothing like that ever happens here. It's not true. We live in a, we live in a, America has a wonderful justice system, not perfect, but it's, it does a lot of good. But we still live in an unjust society. We still live surrounded by merely human attempts to be righteous, to be good. And we get it right sometimes and we get it wrong a lot more. Uh, Justin in his prayer brought up the fact that the Supreme Court right now is weighing a really important decision in the history of our country, something that many Americans have protested and fought for and prayed about for since I was little. I know uh, my parents have been praying and protesting and speaking out about abortion. But it's a, it's, it's a complicated issue because it's a symptom just as much as it's a cause of injustice, right? If we lived in a truly good society, it wouldn't be needed. If we lived in a society where fathers did not ever abandon their children, 
If we lived in a society where someone's hard work always supported their family, if we lived in a society where, if we lived in a just society, we wouldn't need it. Or I'm not going to say that we do need it. If we lived in a just society, some men and women wouldn't feel like it was needed. Let me say it that way. And that's never going to go away as long as we live in this fallen world. We live in this world where uh, the influence and the spread of sin has corrupted everything we come in contact with. And thanks be to God who has redeemed us from that. But we still live in it. And we've still got to point to it and acknowledge that it is unjust. We can't be like the the Jews here who sees Sosthenes in a a fit of vengeance and anger. Something's not going right. Let me punish somebody who I think is responsible for that. Um, We can't react that way. Instead, when we find ourselves in these cultural conversations about what's right and what's wrong, what's just and what's unjust, our end goal, I think, should always be to point to one day all of this is going to be set right. Yes, it's not good right now. And our best efforts are always going to be some sort of a stopgap. Our best efforts are always going to fall just a little bit short of getting things just right. But we worship a God who's coming back one day and will set it all right. We worship a God who's invested in setting things right. Who suffered for us and endured that injustice in order to eventually set things right. I think that's the Christian message here. So, Paul, like us, has been struggling in an unjust world. Paul, like us, has been working tediously. Paul, like us, has been scoffed at and reviled for his beliefs. And I can imagine that where he felt or what he felt like when he was in Corinth, um, was pretty discouraged. But then God comes in. In the midst of this discouragement, in the midst of scoffing, in the midst of uh, being wrongfully treated, and says, do not be afraid. That message is repeated over and over throughout the Bible. Every time God shows up, every time an angel shows up, uh, when Jesus shows up, you hear those words, don't be afraid. There's a lot to be afraid of. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say there's nothing to fear. That's a difference, right? He doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's you know, a corrupt government. There's uh, my own sin. There's these people who are reviling me. There's a lot to be scared of. But he shows up and he says, don't be afraid. And why? So he's, he's got, look at here, there's, this is a really great promise. This is in verse, uh, verse 9. He says, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. There's three commands here, basically meaning the same thing. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. And then the word for. That's, a, that's not saying, that's a, that's a because statement. He's saying you don't have to be afraid. You should go on speaking. You should not be silent because of these things. It's not a conditional statement. He's not saying uh, if you do these things I'm about to tell you, then you don't have to be afraid. No, he's saying here's why. You don't have to be afraid. For I am with you. We just sang that. Um, Kevin picked out a bunch of amazing songs that go right with what we're talking about this morning. 
Uh, we just sang that. God said, I am with you. Take a moment. We've heard that before too. We hear do not be afraid a whole lot. We also hear I am with you a lot in the Bible. Uh, take a moment to recognize the um, uniqueness of that statement. There's a lot of um, religions and spiritualities out there where God comes in and he says, hey, I'm up here. Let me, uh, let me lower my ladder down so you can get up here to me. In Christianity, it's a different message. God shows up and says, don't be afraid. I'm down here. I'm with you. In the midst of this, he says, I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So three commands followed by three promises. And all three of them, I, I love the, the promise of I am with you. But the others, you know, in this one sentence or in this one instance here, we get no one's going to harm you. That one doesn't show up nearly as often as I am with you. Um, Paul gets harmed a lot. We've already seen it and we see it. We'll see it with other believers. We'll see it with Paul more. Uh, that's not always God's promise. The first one is, though, it's one of the last things Jesus said before going up to heaven. He says, I'm with you always. He also said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Uh, so we're, we're not always promised nothing's going to harm you. But God is always with us. And I love the, the, the expansion of Paul's world here. Because if you're like me, or if Paul was like me, um, which I don't know if he was, but just go with it here for a second. When I get discouraged, uh, Danielle can testify to this. I am a shrink inside person. I am a, what we call an internal processor. Uh, some people are external processors and they like to talk it all through with somebody else and that's how they sort of get it off of their chest. Uh, when I am discouraged and overwhelmed, I, I am a tight little ball and I don't talk to anybody else and I'm very quiet. And... Um, I think Paul here, you know, he might have felt that way. Man, I've got this ministry I'm trying to do. I've got these people I'm trying to convert. I've got my fellow Christians around me I want to encourage. And man, here in Corinth, nothing seems quite right. You can see it later too when you read the epistles to the Corinthians. They had some problems in that church. Nothing's going quite right here. And God shows up and says, hey, your world might not be going, you know, your little, Derek's little environment here might not be going the way Derek wants it to. But I got a lot of people in this city. I've got a crowd here. And I'm with you. I think we can take comfort in that. That God will grow his church. And God will take care of his people. Even if I'm in a little pocket of it right now where I can't see it. I think we can, or I hope we can be encouraged by that. We don't perhaps always see visions of God speaking directly to us like Paul does. But unlike Paul, we have, uh, we have God's word written down for us. And if we are, as we talked about in the beginning, if we are occupied by it and occupied with it, we can take comfort in these promises and we can take them and own them for ourselves. Let me pray for us real quick and then we're going to transition to communion. God, I thank you for bringing all of us together today to one small part of your church. 
May we remember that, God. May we uh, never get so focused on ourselves that we think that the way things are going with us are the way that they're going everywhere. And God, may we always remember your promise that you are with us. And may we be in awe of that, God. Uh, may it not be something we dismiss as a truism, but may it be some, a truth that we live through, God, that you're here and you came down to us and you care about us. God, I pray that you just bless our, our week ahead. I pray you bless the rest of our time today. And may you bring us back next week. In your name, amen.